0: This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family. Written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks.
1: Last month, the hip hop artist LeCrae got baptized for a second time in the Jordan River. Afterwards, he posted a picture of the event on Instagram. Some of his fans had questions. Lecrae responded to one fan challenging his second baptism. And this is from CT's reporting on Lecrae's response. It's mikveh, Lecrae replied, referencing the Jewish ritual bath that predates Christian baptism and also represented new life. Number two, he said Jesus was God already and still was baptized. Number three, celebrate the heart versus criticizing the information. Lecrae's the answer didn't necessarily turn away critics as Facebook comments and tweets on CT's pages made clear. Baptism has provoked some of the most contentious discussions within Christianity. It's even led to Christians persecuting other Christians. This week, we wanted to discuss what's at stake when we are talking about Baptism. Today is Wednesday, October 2nd, and this is Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes, discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm
0: Mark Galley, editor-in-chief of Christianity Today.
1: All right, Mark. I would love to hear your gut check or initial reaction to this particular event with Lecrae.
0: Well, as listeners probably recognize, I'm a liturgical snob, so I didn't improve (laughs) of a second baptism. But on the other hand, I've met plenty, uh, not plenty, but I've met a handful of Christians who are just so devout. Their people actually admire the way they live their Christian faith who have, when they've gone to Israel and seen the Jordan River, have insisted on being baptized again. So I cannot question the heart or the quality of people who want to do that. But theologically, it rubs me wrong as an Anglican, of course. As someone who
1: loves the sacraments. Yes. I I did go to a Catholic high school, but other than that, I didn't have a lot of experience with venerating the sacraments, I guess, to the same degree as you, Mark. So when I read this story, I was like, what story? (laughs) (laughs) Why is this a story? Yeah. Yeah. With all due respect to baptism, not trying to like demean it, but.
0: No, this is your initial reaction. Exactly. exactly. That's initial reactions are initial reactions. There you go.
1: I'm like, it's water. It's a cool thing. Yeah. When in Jordan, when in the <laughs> Jordan River. Obviously, that's not how everyone felt about it at all. So we have someone here today to kind of get into us more. Who is our guest?
0: Our guest is Matthew Nell. He's a lecturer in historical theology at the London School of Theology. He's also taught at the Notre Dame Center in the Notre Dame campus in London. So that's a connection with us. He was before that a missionary in Belarus and Austria. So he has some practical pastoral experience as well, I assume. And he's written a couple of books. I I like Matthew right off the bat when I heard that he likes topics that no human being really should tackle, but someone needs to. One of them is Rediscovering the Reformation, and the other is, I'm sorry, is it a series of books on sin, grace, and free will, a historical survey.
2: Two two done so far, one supposedly being written now. Okay, well, welcome. Thank you very much.
1: All right, Matt, so let's talk about this second baptism business. What did you make of this particular story,
2: it's a fairly common thing for those who visit the River Jordan that there'll be some people in, in groups that, that go and get baptised. I think what Lecrae said about seeing the heart, I can see his heart in the action. He's there where Christ was baptised, and he wants to, to, in some way, replicate that. I think it, it's an act of faith that he's doing. It's coming out of his current faith understanding. As with a lot of rebaptism issues, those who actually undergo the rebaptism are, are doing it in good faith based on what teaching they've received my issue would be much more with the teaching that they've received and therefore the church's understanding of baptism in this case and the issue of rebaptism in particular which does have a fairly clear history in the church with some very useful points about how we we approach scripture and i think with with this issue i think at the core of it for me is the concept of the sacred and whether we've we've lost the sacred in seeking to break down the sacred-secular divide that had existed in the church?
1: Well, I think that everyone on this podcast would be a big believer in history, and I'm wondering if there's some really important historical context that you think that we need to know to understand this discussion a little bit better.
2: There's a lot. I I think we do need to go back to the Bible, because that should always be our, our source book, for discussing any area of of theology. And baptism in the Bible, I think there there are kind of two major headlines. Of course, you can write books and books and stuff about the Bible. But starting with the Gospels and Acts, you can see the universal practice of baptism in the early church. It's in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and it's an automatic factor in a person's coming into the people of God in the book of Acts. So universal practice of baptism is, is very clearly established. But those books don't go, do a lot of talking about what's happening in baptism. You see that much more in the letters. Of course, Romans 6 is, is the, the classic text. A lot of Paul's letters, and even in 1 Peter, you get a sense of that this is something special that is happening in baptism. That is, as I say, sacred as an event. And what's more than that, it's a divine work in baptism rather than something that I'm doing. I'm not getting baptised, well, I am getting baptised, but it's not my initiative. It's a divine work in me that's happening in baptism. And I think that's one of the issues that we've kind of lost in our language about baptism. We end up talking about, I'm going to get baptised, I want to get baptised, whereas the Church would say, no, baptism is something that happens to you rather than you being the initiator. That again is that sacred, secular thing. The Church, historically, I think, did get focused too much on the sacred. That phrase, in the world but not of the world, it struggled, if you like, to be in the world. And we've reacted against that a lot, particularly in the last 50 years or so, and sought to be in the world. But as we've made that transition, a lot of our practices have shifted into being of the world, and we've lost that sacredness. And And baptism for Paul seems to be a sacred divine act. And certainly in the early church, baptism is always upheld as a, a sacred act. And therefore, you have this focus on one baptism. Uh, and Ephesians 4 is the most explicit. We believe in one baptism, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Uh, and so the idea of multiple baptisms loses that sanctity of, of the event.
0: So let's talk about that a little bit. There are many things that are happening in baptism. One of them, in Paul's uh, 1 Corinthians says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. It's Baptism is considered the entry into the Christian faith. It's something that's, there's something happening in baptism. Now that's certainly, as an Anglican, and certainly I would think Presbyterians and even Methodists would re- put the emphasis on that, that God is, do- God is doing something. Do, have Baptists traditionally also believe that something's happening in baptism?
2: That's an interesting question. You've you've jumped forward about 1,500 years. But we we can do this. (laughs) Trying to spoil it for other people, I see. It's not a bad question, actually, to set up. We're going to need to trace back.
0: Okay, um, well, let's but, do, yeah, do, answer it like you think we need to, under, to help us understand that.
2: I think the, the Baptists, generally speaking, have had very strong links with Calvin's teachings. They're kind of a, a bit of a blend of, of an evangelicalism or a Puritanism, Calvinism, with some, some anabaptism. And therefore, the Calvin element would still highly commend the the practice of baptism, the, the importance of baptism. Calvin is interestingly sacramental. He's not like Luther, but it, there, there's a core sacramental theology. It's a very complicated one, but it, it's quite beautiful. It says the Baptist churches develop that they begin to ask questions and are influenced more by kind of Zwingli's symbolic language which takes away some of the divine work, they, they start getting anti-sacramental in a more purely Anabaptist way. And I think that's where through the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, the Baptist church actually ends up splitting within itself on this issue. And so you'll start find some Baptist churches that are very, still really quite sacramental. So the Baptist church actually starts splitting with itself on whether b- baptism is necessary for salvation as they start getting slightly less sacramental in their thinking.
0: Yeah, I had an illustration of this a couple of years ago when I went to a independent evangelical church in Dallas, and they were about to baptize—it was a big church, so they were going to baptize, I think it was two or three hundred people that morning—and they had various people come forward and give a testimony. But I thought what was really interesting was how important it was for the pastor, after each person's testimony, to make clear that baptism does nothing. He specifically specifically, verbally made that a point at least a half a dozen times that morning. And I just thought that was so interesting that he was so worried that people would think that actually baptism does something. And that that illustrates that stream of Baptist theology, I think.
2: That really is concerning for me, because when you go, as I say, into the references in Paul, he's explicitly stating that something is happening in baptism. He's loading it with meaning about their identity in Christ, about them dying with Christ, uh, about the lives that they live as a result of it. One, Peter actually says, you know, you're actually saved through the waters when he's making the the point in in his letter. And the early church will always load it with meaning. It it is vitally important that this is your identity in the people of God and that it's that cleansing, it's that new birth into the people of God. And so whilst the the practice of the early church actually is quite variable, they certainly hold to the sanctity of baptism, the necessity of baptism, the sacredness of baptism, and and this, this unity of baptism. It's in, again, Ephesians 4, that that passage on the unity of the body, which focuses on one baptism, and the, the church simply holds to this.
1: I'm glad that you guys represent traditions much different than mine. I, for instance, grew up in a church where baptism was really framed as a public declaration that you make about your faith,
2: I grew up in Baptist churches. I've I've always been in that kind of sector in terms of churches that I ha- have attended. It's where I come from. I was baptized as an adult uh, under that uh, understanding. What I've what I've done as I've gone into into theology is to, to learn from other traditions, uh, and I I love the variety. I love I love my Catholic friends, my Catholic spirituality, because they have so much to teach me, speaking out of different contexts and different experiences, different languages that have engaged with the Bible. Likewise, my I take my students to a Greek Orthodox church every year, where they have a very interesting practice. There's quite an interesting YouTube clip that was pointed out to me of a, an Orthodox baptism, because they still baptise three times, as the early church did, baptising in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there's a great video of a, a Greek Orthodox priest plunging this baby, rather vigorously into the water three times. Yes,
0: it's full immersion um, too, yeah.
2: I now have the, the, the full range. I have my, my Pentecostal students who who focus more on baptism in the spirit rather than water baptism and, and prefer to talk in that kind of area, but we're really not going to get into that today, I don't think. We haven't got time.
0: And I should confess that I've been baptized twice, so I'm— Mark!
1: Pen- <laughs> Oh, I was my ba- gosh.
0: Well, I was baptized. So this is what, this shows you the state of where we're at when you talk about the local <laughs> church teaching. I was baptized as a Roman Catholic infant. And then when I had a conversion experience as an evangelical at the Evangelical Free Church in Felton, California, they wanted me to get baptized.
1: I thought you would have again. said that you were already a Christian, though.
0: Well, here's the deal. You didn't as uh, Like Matthew, I grew in my understanding of what I believed baptism was. And so when people ask me, you know, for years, when were you baptized? I would say January something, 1966 at Evangelical Free Church. But as I grew in my understanding, I realized, no, actually, I was baptized in September 28th, 1952. And I was only baptized that second time, like you said, Matthew, because that was the teaching of the local church. I was 13 at the time. I didn't know any better. So I said,
2: fine. My wife was rebaptized. She was baptized as an infant in the Catholic Church in Lithuania by parents who didn't have, have much belief. And, and when she went through a conversion experience as a young adult, they told her to get, to get baptised, and she did. As a faith act, it was a right faith act to do because she was following the, the, the teaching of the church. The church didn't have the understanding. And one of the things that's happened in a lot of those traditions, and one of the great differences between Protestant churches today and, and the Reformers is that we have taken tradition out uh, of our theological method or, or de-emphasised it massively. Whereas if you look at Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and these uh, the, the great reformers, their writings are saturated with the church's tradition. They're wanting to reform the church, not to restart the church, to just go, okay, what do we want it to do? They want to get back to, to the faith of the church, witnessed to primarily in Scripture. That tradition has a, a major role. It doesn't govern them, and they're going to te- always test everything under Scripture. But in terms of this area, they, they absolutely follow the, the teachings of the church.
1: If you could just clarify a question, I should know the answer to, but I do not. Do not judge me. How was baptism practiced before Jesus and the church started?
2: You do have in the pre-Christian times various forms of baptism. The one we know most about, of course, is John's baptism. But John's baptism seems to be a type of Jewish baptisms that had become more popular. That's an interesting one with with John's baptism for me, because it should be more shocking than we think it is, I think. John was saying, be baptized as an act of repentance for your sins. As a Jew, if you want to cleanse yourself of your sins, you go to the temple, you do the, you follow the, the Torah, you follow the sacrificial rituals, and contained in that, particularly in the Day of Atonement, God, God said, I will forgive your sins in this. So the fact that people are baptizing for forgiveness systems outside the temple, they're basically saying that what's happening in the temple has lost its power, lost its efficacy. It, it's a, it's a, it is a strangely challenging spirituality when you think about the context of the land of Israel. They, these people would encourage Jews to come to the River Jordan to be baptized when they got the temple there, where they could go and do the sacrifices. It's a it's a strange concept of baptism already, but there is a clear distinction between the baptism of John and the baptism the, the Christian church will be doing afterwards.
1: Thank you for sharing that, though, because that actually does cast Jesus' own baptism in a different light, too.
2: Jesus' baptism, we have to say, stands apart anyway. There is no need for Christ to be baptized in terms of the washing of his sins, of course. He has this wonderfully ambiguous phrase, to fulfill all righteousness, which sounds cool, but I have no idea what that means. And I can't exactly. come across anyone who can genuinely tell me what that means. I know that the early church, when it's writing about Jesus' baptism, says there was no need for him to be baptized because he's not a, a sinner himself. And so whatever is happening in Jesus' baptism is something that I think we need to be very cautious in saying it is this or that. Uh, anybody who starts saying, I know what Jesus' is baptism about, I think is exalting them to themselves too far because the Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us enough indications to be confident about what Jesus is doing in his baptism. Beyond, we know that, that the experience connected with his baptism acted as the, the commissioning for his ministry. But I don't think we can therefore say he was being baptized as a commission. That's, again, stepping beyond where the text is allowing us to go.
1: Thank you for that even more even greater context beyond the early church stuff but please tell us about the early church stuff
2: within the, the the new testament of course we don't have explicit infant baptisms we have implied infant baptisms in the in the household baptisms in the book of acts uh, and to a certain extent in in Paul's considerations of, of children of believing parents are considered holy for their sake but within scripture it's it's not absolutely clear and the the early church practice is as i say variable infant pra- baptism was certainly a, a, an aspect by the middle of the second century, at least. I was looking through the, the writings at the end of the first, beginning of the second century this morning, and I couldn't find an ex, anything explicit in there. Baptism very highly regarded, but they don't actually go into specifics of infant baptism. By the late second century, we know that in, infants are, are very clearly being baptised. There's a guy called Tertullian who writes one of the first major tracts on baptism, and he actually says you might want to wait to baptise until a child gets to an age where they can basically understand what's going on, or at least you wait until Easter, because Easter is a good time to get baptised because of the dying, rising metaphor. So even if you're going to baptise a baby, at least wait till Easter to do it. So there's not an absolute urgency of baptism. A lot of the records we get going into the 4th century indicate that some people were waiting until they were adults to be baptised, others are being baptised as infants. You have a a slightly, I think, mistaken spirituality where you start having people waiting until their deathbed to get baptised. I think that Ultimately is, is is mistaken, but it, it does again show how special they held baptism to be. There, there's a question: of what happens to the sins committed after baptism? And so if I leave it to the last moment, I, I like the way they're trying to honour baptism. The result of it in their actual teaching, I think, is a bit wonky and needs to be corrected. They've got some principles out of whack, if you like, in creating that practice. You've got. This highly uh, revered practice, it is something that's very special in the the history of the church, but it it is very varied in its practice from location to location. Again, the church is not particularly unified through these centuries until the Roman uh, Empire, you know, the Edict of Milan and toleration of Christianity. Uh, Even for centuries after that, it's still quite patchy about exactly uh, how uniform the practice is. And there's a very clear difference between Western and Eastern Europe. The the first time that anabaptism really comes or rebaptism comes on the scene is after the first major bout of persecutions of the church the really huge persecutions in the late third century when you have legal systematic empire-wide persecutions where if you haven't done the prescribed rituals if you're a Roman citizen then you're 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 subject to, to death and you start having people who recant their Christianity or at least on the surface they renounce their Christianity and you have vast numbers of Christians dying successive bishops of Rome being martyred for the faith vast numbers dying and then And when the persecution dies out, you've got the question. Some of these people who formally renounced their Christianity come back to the church and say, well, I didn't mean it. You know, I was still worshipping in secret. So can I come back into the church? And that's a a split in the church that results from that, which is related to, to baptism because the, the mainstream church says, yes, if you're genuinely contrite, it's God's job to, to judge, not ours. Therefore, if you truly repent, you can come back into the church. And some of these people who came back became priests and even bishops later on, because a lot of those who were left in the church were ill-educated, those those who avoided the persecutions. But then you have a group called the Donatists who say, no, there is no salvation. Once you have renounced your faith, there is no forgiveness left, based on a couple of passages in, in Hebrews. And they said, if you receive your baptism from a priest who has renounced the faith then that baptism is of no effect therefore you have to be rebaptized by a Donatist priest bishop because that is then an authentic baptism and you have these two great church fathers uh, Cyprian of Carthage and Augustine Pippo the, the great Saint Augustine uh, who argue against the Donatists and say no it's it's not the minister the priest who is an agent in baptism. The effective agent in baptism is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is able to sanctify anybody who conducts a baptism, and any elements, any water that is used for baptism can be made holy because the Holy Spirit makes it holy. And therefore, it doesn't matter who you've been baptized by. They don't even have to have been a Christian. It's a strange faith that gets you baptized by someone who's not a Christian. But anybody can be used as the instrument for the Holy Spirit to baptize. You shouldn't baptize yourself. The church has always said you should never baptize yourself. But anybody else can baptize you because it's a divine work. It's not a human work, and any instruments, human or or material, are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, there is one baptism. And if you've been baptized in a Donatist church, you don't get rebaptized when you come back to the, the mainstream church. That was a, a vital event in clarifying this idea of, of one baptism. You don't rebaptism is something that, in Augustine's thought, is absolutely written out.
0: A lot of this was left up to the leading of the Holy Spirit of the early church because Jesus left us with three dominical sayings. they called dominical sayings that they're to share in the body and blood of Christ and the bread and the wine. You're to baptize in my name and you're to f- wash feet. But it wasn't clear how often those were to be done or how they were to be done. And it was through the leading of the Spirit that those things finally, the sacrament of communion became a weekly event, baptism a one-time event. And I think they settled on uh, washing of the feet as an annual event.
2: Baptism as a single event, seems to have been right at the beginning. I can't see any any okay. indications of that ever being a question in the church. The thing with Augustine, which is going to be important for, for baptism going forwards, this is not wholly Augustine's fault. Many people say that it's not his fault at all. He, he develops the concept of original sin, somewhat, from an earlier position of the church, which clearly involves a brokenness of humanity from conception onwards, but doesn't necessarily involve a guilt of humankind from conception onwards. So you have, for example, Gregory of Nyssa in the late fourth, century writing a a pamphlet on infants' early deaths, where he says there is sufficient grace because of Christ's death that an infant who dies is guaranteed new life. But Augustine changes that very explicitly. He has a chapter in one of his books saying unbaptized infants are damned, but only lightly. And so once you have that change, then for Christians, baptism directly after birth, particularly if there's any complications, becomes a necessity. You don't have any kind of talk from that point onwards of delaying baptism. Now, when Augustine's doing that, the church is still far from being anything like a majority in the in the Roman Empire. You still have a lot of people becoming Christians later on. A couple of hundred years later, once you're, you're moving into Christendom, then you end up with a, a dynamic where pretty much everybody in Western Europe is being baptized at eight days old. There's very few people left who are not being baptized at eight days old. And it becomes a kind of universal practice. And therefore, to a certain extent, the focus on becoming a Christian gives gets rather lost, because Western Europe becomes fairly self-contained, with the exception of some crusades five, six hundred years later. It becomes a self-contained entity. And with the exception of odd pockets of of Jewish believers, pretty much everybody, it's a universal Christianity, where becoming a Christian, entering into the people of God, happens in the baptismal service. And so the Catholic Church, through those next pretty much thousand years, starts to focus less on becoming a Christian, and far more on remaining in the body of Christ. And so it begins to emphasize more a Eucharist and the sacrament of reconciliation or penance or confession and this kind of communal identity that you enter into it through baptism and then you own it and are empowered through the sacrament of confirmation. That becomes the kind of the model through the, the, the medieval period and you end up with slightly less focus on the individual becoming a christian because they aren't in touch with too many people who are but but that's that's kind of the focus uh, of the medieval church uh, and baptism becomes this kind of almost an automatic entry in and it's going to be one of the questions which is going to come up at the time of the reformation i'm glad that
1: you kind of brought up how it changes when the holy roman empire and christendom and church and state start really fusing together because I went to an Anabaptist school for undergrad. And one of, I don't want to like attribute this if this is wrong to my school, but understandings that I had about some of the ways that Anabaptists in particular were really challenging to the powers that be at that time is that it became very threatening to suggest that conversion was something that was experienced at an individual adult basis that was opt-in and opt-out rather than people just seeing themselves part of a community forever. It was that part of the reason that they were persecuted as widely as they were was because that idea
2: this gets very interesting at this point when you get into the reformation and the anabaptists and the reformation and this is this is something that that came to me when i was researching my my book got to plug it uh, this rediscovering the reformation and particularly the the approach of protestant groups to the anabaptists was for me more interesting than the catholic approach to the anabaptists because in many ways the anabaptists got greater grief from the protestant groups than from the catholic groups because they were seen to corrupt the reforms that the headline reforms that were being that were being driven by by the reformers. So, in terms of the major reformers, particularly in the early earlier years of the Reformation, Luther and Zwingli initially, and then rather later Calvin. All of these recognized infant baptism as, as the correct practice of the church, the historic practice of the church from a correct understanding of Scripture. Even Zwingli, who was less fa- in favour of sacramental theology and quite quite anti sacramental theology, still recognised infant baptism as as the right practice. And all three, Luther, Zwingli and Calvin, who are the ones I know best, I know others spoke in similar lines, wrote quite vehemently Against the Anabaptist idea. And Luther is very explicit. He writes tracts against the Anabaptists on this particular point. Because for him, the most important thing in baptism, again, is that this is about the work of grace in a person's life. We are saved by grace alone. And for him, the idea of an adult choosing to be baptized denied salvation by grace alone. Because it basically said, I'm choosing to be baptized. It's when I commit myself to God. And and Luther would say, "No, you're chosen by God. That the faith that you have is a result of grace. The faith that you're able to hold on to, you're only able to hold on to because grace is at work with you." If you're suddenly saying, "No, I'm going to choose to to follow Christ," then for Luther, you've you've lost the Gospel and he talks quite extensively of that infants are types of faith because they don 't have they 're making the choices they are saved and then they have to to realize so they 're not saying that you 're guaranteed salvation because you were baptized as an infant, but infant baptism is emphasizes the the sovereignty of grace and the idea of rebaptizing. Then removes grace and and makes baptism and salvation my choice rather than the, the work of God. And so they were they were hearing the Anabaptists and saying, well, this sounds like either Pelagius, who's an early church heresy, who said that I'm the person who who chooses it, or it's a kind of a, a humanism which says. I have free will. I can decide whether I get saved or not. And the major reformers were all against that and saying, no, your will is is bound by sin. You are dead in sin until you are saved by grace. And you can claim no credit for your salvation. And so that, that approach of saying, I want to choose when I'm going to be baptized and enter into the faith, they would say is, is a doctrine of works, not a doctrine of grace. And so that's why they they really hammer away at the Anabaptists on this point, because they just think they're removing it, they're denying the, the power of grace. Calvin is rather different. Calvin is less directly sacramental. Luther is, is pretty close to the Catholic position on, on baptism. Calvin is, is wonderfully mysterious in what he says, because he says you baptise an infant and salvation is a work of grace and it's conveyed through baptism, but you only know that the grace has been received as the person lives the life of faith or potentially comes back to the faith after after a sinful life. But Calvin is still saying it's grace alone and infant baptism is the right thing rather than positing that I'm active in my salvation. They all want us to be passive in our salvation, that, that salvation is a work of grace, divine work, and baptism, in line with Paul, is a divine work done to me rather than something that I choose to do. So that's that's some of the stuff that's going on in, in the Reformation times.
0: Two other developments that I think should be mentioned to pique listeners' curiosity. One is, I think, the way Calvin's theology gets expressed in the Presbyterian mode—I was a Presbyterian pastor for 10 years—is the big deal about but infant baptism is you are you become a member of the covenant community at that point. That's the big emphasis. Now you are part of the church's life, part of the covenant community. And then really interesting paradox is that the greatest Reformed theologian of the 20th century, Karl Barth, moved away from infant baptism and actually championed adult baptism again, even though he was a Reformed theologian. So these things weave in and out of church history.
2: But then on the other hand, George Beasley Murray, who's one of the great Baptist theologians, he moved from denying infant baptism early in his life to affirming infant baptism at the end of his life. There you
0: go. Uh, yeah. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of
1: victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world.
0: 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and
1: Sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on, and on
2: Based on interviews and conversations captured on
1: the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in
0: the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there.
1: This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Mark brought up some stuff from the 20th century, and I'm wondering if we can fast forward to, I don't know, the past 25 maybe 50 years, to kind of just get a sense of where we are in this conversation today. Maybe you can talk about some of the newer or fresher theological understandings of baptism, or even maybe some more of the polemic ones. But just so that if people were going to look over the discussion today, they would be familiar at least a little bit with what's being written about.
2: I think a, a lot of it has come out of traditions that don't go back very far. So particularly for for newer churches, they've had to almost build their own traditions within recent, recent generations. Uh, and again, a lot of faith, generally speaking, present in these churches because they don't put them, they don't root themselves in the historic church and historic church understandings. They can be quite variable in terms of you know, they'll take certain passages and experience is often quite important in particularly in charismatic churches. It's a key part of the theological method, and so that can be somewhat prioritized throughout the church. And I perfectly accept that I'm as in need of this as anybody. A sense of humility before the church in this regards and everything else. I think. We We've got a, a measure of humility before, before God in our churches, before Scripture. I don't think we we have sufficient humility. I think we generally look for our tradition in Scripture, but before other church denominations, we are we are woefully short of of humility. And I think that's that's one thing which we need to to get back into the church. There are a couple of events in the last fifty years that I think I would highlight. One is is the Catholic reaffirmation of their historic position in the Vatican II Council in the nineteen sixties. Just about fifty years. 60 years, where in their document on the church, a document called Lumen Gentium, in the second chapter, they talk about Christians outside of the Roman Catholic Church, and they affirm that we are one body with one faith and one baptism. And so they very explicitly acknowledge the baptisms of other Christian groups, even though saying this is not our uh, baptismal practice. That was uh, uh, an encouraging, as I say, it's simply their historic position reaffirmed, but it, it's it's good to have it in the modern context. The other is in 1982. It's not quite ultra modern, but it's not too bad. There was a very important meeting led by the World Council of Churches in Lima, in Peru, on baptism, Eucharist and ministry, where the World Council of Churches, which has under its umbrella a massively wide range of Christian denominations. There are very few major denominations who aren't part of the, the World Council of Churches. The the Catholics, because of, of papal issues, uh, haven't joined up but are, are heavily involved in discussions, not, not in this one in 1982. But, but that was a, a discussion on baptism, Eucharist and ministry. The, the goal was for each of the different traditions to come and to present their practice and their the biblical theology Theological foundations that inform that practice. And it was a a task of listening to each other and saying, there is only one body of Christ. The idea that there are divisions in the body of Christ cannot make any sense. You can't chop Christ's arm off and say, well, it's divided up. There is only one body. Therefore, we need to try and honour ourselves, recognise that we come out of different contexts, historically, culturally, linguistically, philosophically, experientially. We want to understand each other and, as far as possible, honour each other, recognising that there are are, there are differences uh, and that maybe we can't practice everything together but we can recognize okay that's why you do things differently and again going back to the to the beginning it's that understanding why i'm doing what i'm doing too few churches are are asking these days they're assuming that what has been done in previous generations is is sound and there's too little reflection to say well what is what is the basis of this which scriptures are affirming this and and this is a, a key point for me because w- whenever i find scriptures affirming one thing, I'm getting a confidence that I can say this about God or about salvation or about the church or about humanity. As soon as I I say something about any of those things, Scripture will say to me yes, that's true, but this other thing is also true and that other thing is also true and that is true, and they don't fit into your box that you're trying to construct around anything. There's this dynamism, these tensions that we live in. Scripture doesn't want us to constrain it into our understanding. It wants to expand our experience our understanding under the authority of scripture. 1982 in Lima was a was a healthy event for the church in seeking to listen to each other and and seek to affirm each other whilst not, you know, bowing to each other saying well I'm going to simply adopt your practices. So that that was significant and and indicates it's one part of this ecumenical movement of churches beginning to to say well we are part of one church, therefore we better start recognizing, you know, start preparing for for the new creation, because we're going to have to live with each other for eternity. So if we can start living with each other now and affirming each other now, that's good. And and baptism was was one where I think there was some some good progress that was being made.
1: Thank you, Matt, so much for all of this information and context. And I'm glad that we could add on a note of Christian unity, which is exciting to see, especially knowing just how much blood has literally been shed over some of these issues. So that's encouraging. If people have feedback for us, if, if this aroused any strong opinions for you, please send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. You can also go on to Twitter. We're at Podcasts. Now is the time of the show where we get to hear from our listeners. And last week, Mark and I did a show about evangelism. And we got this email in response to it from a woman named Christiane. This is what she wrote. I just want to say... I highly appreciated hearing your podcast last week as a young evangelist. This was my first quick-to-listen podcast listen, and I felt like even though the hosts weren't gung-ho about evangelism, they were willing to engage with an evangelist who had some amazing things to say about the role of public proclamation of the gospel. I thought it was really encouraging to me and helpful for Christians who are on the fence regarding evangelism in general. Just wanted to encourage you as hosts and say thanks for giving voice to someone who actually cares about evangelism. Most podcasts that talk about evangelism usually shut it down without asking someone call to evangelism, and you guys did the opposite, listening in now to this podcast. Signed, A Thankful Young Evangelist. She picked up our
0: hesitancy. We were mainly, I think, both of, both of us are hesitant about the type of public evangelism that we were talking about, uh, speaking out in a public square, both of us.
1: Yes, we prefer we, we prefer secret yeah, evangelism. Yeah, secret <laughs>
0: evangelism, one-on-one. But I, I will say that our guest gave me pause for thought uh, on my instincts on that. And one of the reasons we like to have guests with different views is we we ourselves like to be pushed and prodded in terms of our own beliefs. And so that was very helpful. For
1: me, I know you came away thinking, man, York Moore. Yeah. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) We are just going to take this time to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by people who support our ministry here at Christianity Today. Last week, we ended up getting a grant that sent around 20 different staff members to Alabama on a trip to learn more about civil rights in our country. So I had the opportunity to visit Birmingham, Selma and Montgomery. And we visited different museums there, talked to different people who had different experiences with the civil rights movement, including meeting some people who actually marched during like the the Selma March itself and kind of realizing how recent slash concurrent a lot of that history is. So that was really interesting just to hear all about that. I know Mark was sad. He didn't get to go.
0: Did do that when I was younger. I actually went to the church where the four girls were killed and Uh, on a trip to To Birmingham, Birmingham, thought there would be a museum there at the time, and there wasn't. Uh, Mm -hmm. The pastor was there, and he showed me around the church. Uh, He said all that was happening, and I'm glad to see it happen. Apparently, it's really impressive.
1: Yeah, so they actually got a grant during the Obama administration to remodel their basement and Now their basement has a lot of different plaques that kind of explain the church's history. I just want to give a small note about the church because I think this is an interesting point to bring up. But the church was kind of where the black elite in Birmingham attended. That's part of the reason that they were able to purchase the land and the materials to build their own church. It was probably one of the most reticent institutions out of all of them to participate in the civil rights movement. Maybe not surprising to people who think that Yeah, when you have a certain amount of influence in a community, it can be hard to join organizers and activists. And especially since many of the people who I would just say because of how intense the segregation was in the city, right, a lot of black institution grew up concurrent to the white institutions and the leaders of those institutions and shops and different places that were frequented by the black customers were a little bit worried. At least that's what our tour guide told us about what integration would mean for their customer base, not to mention just joining with people who were protesting. I also learned from our tour guide at the church that this, out of all the churches in Birmingham that hosted the civil rights protesters and workers and allowed people to work there, they were the only church that charged money to the civil rights movement to be able to use their space.
0: Oh, that's Um, interesting.
1: Yeah. So they have a much more complicated relationship to activism than some of these other churches did. And so it's a little bit ironic in some ways that they ended up being at their location in many ways, which I guess maybe it's less ironic. They were nervous about being targeted, too, again, because of the fact that they had this most prestige in the community. Shortly thereafter that they got a little bit more involved with it was when this bombing that killed these four girls happened. And now it's kind of seen as a big civil rights landmark. But it's just, it just ironic because they were a little bit more on the periphery and reticent at first to participate yeah. in it.
0: And that's fairly common when we talk about revolutionary movements of one sort or another or protest movements. There's a group of Christians that are out there wanting the most radical changes. And there's a group of moderates and sometimes conservatives who say if we push too hard too fast, it's actually going to make things worse. We've got to slow down. We've got to be moderate. We generally end up recognizing the people who's ended up making a difference. Usually along the way, there's Christians of all sorts trying to make this thing happen in different ways Mm -hmm. as well.
1: Anyway, we could talk about all of this more for a future show, but it was definitely really cool to have this particular experience to learn some of the, exactly what I'm mentioning, which is the, the nuances of the actual history itself. People can support our ministry by donating. Thank you, everyone, to donate. That is morect.com slash podcast, morect.com slash podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. Everyone has a chance to share something that is bringing them joy. Go ahead, Mark.
0: Went to Houston this weekend, celebrated my brother-in-law's 60th birthday, and met a lot of his friends. Uh, he, he's worked for ExxonMobil his whole life, got to talk a little bit about the environment because actually they're pretty aware of the challenges we're facing and they're they're doing their part to try to figure out how to solve that problem. So I, this was a good time to get away, see a brother-in-law, sister-in-law, meet some new people, travel with my wife. So that was just a good weekend.
1: Sounds like it. And a uh, time to meet some people completely outside our industry, huh?
0: It's always fun to talk to people who are involved in an industry that everybody has an opinion about, the oil industry. <laughs> talk to the people in that industry to, to, to find out what they think of all the opinions being thrown around. Uh, As you can imagine, I won't go into it here, but the whole thing is much more nuanced than we would imagine.
1: To be continued. Do you want to talk about the Galley Report?
0: I publish something called the Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report. You can find it at christianitytoday.com slash the report You know, I do a lot of reading during the week and the stuff that I think is the most interesting, most useful for my readers, I put a link to it. I comment on it. I love it. I do get a fair amount of feedback from people suggesting other links, disagreeing with me, So it's just a really pleasant part of the ministry for
1: me. Awesome. All right. Go ahead, Matt.
2: We're, we're in Freshers' Week at the moment. Our, our academic calendar is rather different to, to what happens in the States, where it starts a lot earlier, but I'm in the middle of meeting some some new Freshers' students who are starting the, the theology journey, and that always excites me, because I know that they're going to be changed. If we study theology well, we're going to be transformed. We're going to be opened up. We're going to be expanded and challenged. Uh, and I, I, I'm always excited. You know, There's a journey which I will walk closely with them on for the next three years. I may play, I hope, some small role in God transforming these people but then I have the the honor of watching them go out and go out into the world and and, and take take the gospel out and and take bring, try and bring the kingdom in in so many different contexts and it just brings me great joy to know that I've got these new people that I can love to the best of my ability and, and follow and, and watch them as they as they grow in their faith and are equipped to, to serve God
1: oh that's wonderful so you guys are just starting your school year right now at the beginning of october yeah,
2: next, week, next week is first week of lectures my my Notre Dame lecturing's been going on for many- Anyway, so yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of almost mid-semester with, with the Notre Dameers, and I'm having a lot of fun uh, with them. But LST is just about to start next week and kick off.
1: Okay, I have a random question. If you go to school at the London campus of the Notre Dame, are you still the Fighting Irish?
2: Well, absolutely <laughs> the Fighting Irish. Yeah, it's, just, you know, it's one of, the, they've got about seven or eight uh, campuses around the world that they encourage students to, to go in. I, I did a, an academic lecture for them a couple of weeks ago on Irish spirituality, so I called it the Press. Irish, oh. uh, to try and transform their identity a little bit. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great community.
0: Yeah, talk about a a sacred institution at Notre Dame. Their their football stadium is sacred. The football field is sacred. Football helmets are sacred.
2: There you go. Yeah, I've never visited home campus yet. I'm still waiting for the invitation. Okay,
1: <laughs> Matt, do you want to remind people of? the names of your books or give them the website where they can find you on?
2: If you want to get in contact with me, you can get it through the, the London School of Theology website, lst.ac.uk. My my recent books, there's a more popular level one called Rediscovering the Reformation, which kind of seeks to say you can only really understand the Reformation if you understand 1500 years of history. You can't just go back to the late medieval period and say they're reforming that. They're, they're, they're speaking in the light of the whole history of the church. So that's a that was a, a fun project. Uh, particularly, uh, I do a thing on, on persecution. I managed to find, we know Fox's book of Christian martyrs as one of the great works. And I managed to find the the Catholic equivalent, which was published in 1583 and never been translated into English. And I provide the first translation of one of the stories from that. But then the other is, on a more academic thing, is a a series of books on on seeing grace and free will, a historical reader looking at the variety of positions that that major theologians have held. Uh, There's a couple of volumes being published. The third one hopefully will come out in the next year or so.
1: For my precious moment, I think one of my favourite things in life is finding the thing that people are actually interested in and want to talk to you about, and kind of seeing how quickly I can get to that point with someone. So I was at Walmart a couple of days ago and had pretty big order. So much so that someone had to run back and get something. So anyway, I was at the cash register for a longer time. And I ended up finding out that my cashier loved baking and cooking. And he started telling me all the secret ingredients that he puts into his cakes and desserts that he makes all the time, which is really fun to just see him light up and be excited about that type of stuff because I firmly believe everyone is interesting and you have to just find it, which is kind of why I'm a journalist too. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps. You can rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can find it wherever you get podcasts, including Spotify. And we will see you all next week.